Well, let's come in and find our seats, all six of us, and I'm being generous. <laughs> and let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And let's pray. Father, once again, thank you for the gift of your word here as we stand at the, at the onset of a new year. Uh, we can look back at how you have been faithful to us in so many ways. Uh, you're a faithful God. You say what is true. You define what is true. You are working all things after the counsel of your own will. You can be trusted. We know that everything that we face is because you have deemed it best for us. Thank you for the instruction that you give us, the guidance that you give us, that we may have insight, that we may have wisdom, that we may assess the things going on around us. And Father, we, as we come to some of the things that we're going to deal with this morning, I pray that you would help us to see you, that we would... Um, we would be overwhelmed by your majesty, that we would be stirred on to, to love you more, to love you fully. You deserve nothing less. Help us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, as we uh, were working through chapter 6 here in, in Timothy, he has talked about how to deal with widows. He has talked about how to um, deal with elders, both in choosing, in chastising, and in how to care for them. And then he goes in and he talks about those who are slaves. How are they to serve both uh, believing masters and unbelieving masters? And then once again, he returns to a common theme in this book, um, in dealing with, remember that one of the reasons that Timothy was left at Ephesus, what was the first thing Paul says to him back in chapter 1? I think it's verse 3. For this reason I left you at Ephesus that you may teach certain men not to teach false doctrine. What Paul had uh, forecast back in Acts chapter 20, a number of years before this letter is written, has come to pass that there have been those who have arisen out of the leadership in the Ephesian church and they are leading people astray. They are ravaging the flock and Timothy is Paul's representative to combat that, to stem the tide of the, of the plunge into error and false doctrine. And so, uh, here in, chat, in verse 3, we'll just begin reading. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content." Let's stop there. And so the, the, he's, he's got a picture here of those who would be leading into error, who would be choosing something besides the sound doctrine. And remember, sound doctrine here is typically used with one of two words. One is kalos, which is good. It's inherently good. The one that is most commonly used is the word from which we get our word hygiene. It's sound. It is healthy doctrine. It's doctrine that's going to lead you into good spiritual growth. And so the, the picture here of the men that are taking uh, believers here and steering them into error, there are symptoms. 
What's a symptom? What's a symptom? Not, I'm not, is a symptom the problem? So if you have, <laughs> you know, it used to be before the last couple of years, you could use this example very easily. If you have the flu, what would be a symptom of the flu? Fever. First, you know, number one, one that most people would come up with, right? You have a fever. So if you try to suppress the fever, are you dealing with what is really wrong? No. The fever is a symptom. It is a manifestation. Here's, here's a sign that something else over here is going on. There are symptoms for when you start falling into error. When all of a sudden you start to see these things popping up. Envy. Is there any place for envy in a healthy church with healthy doctrine and spiritually healthy and spiritually maturing members? Envy shouldn't belong there at all, right? That ought not be present. How about strife? How about abusive language? Why would you ever have abusive language between people who are believers and who are caring for each other, or should be? That should never be present, should it? Now, can you have admonishment between people? Loving admonishment? Absolutely you can, and you should. We should have those things. But when all of a sudden that transitions over into the, the idea of abusive language, you're no longer dealing with the issue. You've taken something that is a, a circumstance and you've made it personal. And so that is an evidence of a problem. It's a symptom. Evil suspicions. Ooh. Stephen, it is good to have you home. If I'm always looking at Stephen out of the corner of my eye, and it's not just looking at him and not just keeping an eye on him, the evil suspicions part is not only am I keeping an eye on him, I'm doing that because I am already ascribing motives to him whether he's earned them or not. And in fact, usually, if it's evil suspicions, he hasn't. Evil suspicions is not Stephen's problem in this moment, right? Evil suspicions is my problem. When you have that present in a church where you've got people looking sideways and just, you know, I know he's up to something. In fact, I know, and I know that whatever he's up to, it is no good. When you have that and you have strife and you've got, uh, you know, people talking trash to each other, that is a health issue. And most of the time it is going to come right back here to the issue of, I've got an issue, I've got a problem with what I'm choosing to believe. Those are symptoms of that. Now there's another one when you have somebody who is a false teacher. False teachers are characterized, they are not concerned about feeding the sheep. They tend to be concerned about fleecing the sheep. If you have a man in ministry who is driven by his paycheck, you've got the wrong man in ministry. And so this idea here, and again, it's not hard to create a religion. Look at Scientology created out of thin air and it is a multi-billion dollar industry and so you can take advantage 
of people. And the idea here, again, is if you, when, you, when you can look at a man and you get a snapshot of him, that he is driven by the desire to accumulate. I saw uh, in the news, there's, uh, and I don't even remember who this guy is. Who he is isn't necessarily important. The guy has a $10.5 million, and I just lost power. We back on? The guy has a ten and a half million dollar house on which he pays no property taxes because he has it listed as a parsonage. Now think about that for just a moment. I don't want to I don't want to men who dedicate their lives to the ministry are to be treasured. But what does it say to a watching world when you have somebody claiming something like that? It certainly raises questions now, doesn't it? And so Paul is going to go in here and he's going to deal with an issue, and it's a big issue. Often it's the elephant in the room. And he's going to talk about the issue of money. He's going to take on riches from two different vantage points. He's going to talk about those who have the desire to have riches. So this is something that they do not currently have, but it is something that, boy, they sure would like to. And then later in the chapter, he's going to deal with those who are already rich in this present world. Now, is money inherently bad? No. There have been rich believers in the Bible, right? Job. You know, when you have thousands of camels and thousands of sheep and, and all of that, you're a wealthy man. Abraham was a wealthy man. So there's nothing inherently wrong with money. But there is a potential snare and a temptation with money now isn't there. Why is it? Out of all the things that Jesus could have talked about when it comes to no man can serve two masters. Why? Out of everything that he could have chosen, why does he choose money? Why? That's not a rhetorical question. Money is power. It's the ability to accumulate whatever your heart desires. What are we prone to do? Even as believers, what are we prone to do? Serve ourselves. Look, we are prone to putting something else on the throne. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he dealt with the subject of money in the Lord's Prayer. Where is it? Give us to this day our daily bread. Now, daily bread there's a nice little thread that we can pull because if you pull on the thread of daily bread where will it take you back to it takes you to the tabernacle but even before the tabernacle where does it take you to go all the way back to the wilderness to the wanderings there's manna coming down from heaven and what were you to do with that manna Six days, five days a week, what, would you, what were you to do? Gather enough for today. And everybody on your block would know if you gathered something to save for tomorrow, right? Because it would become putrid. And everybody would know that, you know what, he did it again. He's trying to gather for tomorrow. And so five days out of the week, you were to gather enough for today. 
And then all of a sudden, on Friday, you gathered enough for two days. Because you, it didn't show up on Sunday. It didn't show up on the Sabbath. Showed up every other day of the week. Not on the Sabbath. And so on the day before, you could gather more. And lo and behold, it kept. And so, and, and what was God trying to get into Israel's mind when they are wandering about in the desert? When it comes to the manna. What is he drilling into their heads on a daily basis by example? Yeah, they are utterly dependent on him and they can depend on him. He's going to provide them what they need for today. Excuse me. He can be trusted. And so this idea, they didn't, and and, and again, when you're wandering around for 40 years in the desert, you don't want to be lugging a freezer with you, right? You don't want to be trying to carry something to where I've got provisions for a month. You've got to be mobile. And so he's trying to convince them that they can trust him for daily needs. What is our tendency? Am I comfortable with having enough to eat today? Boy. Now I got to look at this one because I've got two freezers in my garage. I've got two refrigerators in the house. I got a room in my garage where there have been times where I have had buckets translated into hundreds of pounds of wheat. Carolyn grinds up the wheat, makes, makes her own flour. Boy, it's good stuff. But the fact is, is that when you, when you, am I really concerned about my daily bread? If I've got three months worth of food sitting outside? You see, our definition of what is enough and God's definition of what is enough are very often at odds, frankly. We tend, when we have got enough, (laughs) it happened with Israel. Israel moves into the promised land, inheriting houses they didn't build. Vineyards they didn't plant, orchards they didn't plant. And what happened to them? Pretty quickly. They forget God because we have enough. And we're at peace. We are prone to wander. And so this idea, that's why Paul looks at this and he says, we are prone, if, if, if we've got a gazillion dollars in the bank, do I, am I really trusting God? Do I feel the need that I have to trust God for what I have, for what I need today, for what I need for tomorrow? So again, money can be a temptation and it can be a snare because we're not just prone to having money, we're prone to loving it. Therein lies the rub. It's our attitude toward it. And so these men who are in ministry for the wrong reasons, for wrong motives, because they're able to have someone else take care of them, so they don't have to be out. They don't have to be like Paul. Paul's out working as a tent maker so that he doesn't have to burden the church with caring for him. He has to work hard. These other guys are looking, I don't have to do that because someone else will be able to go through and do this for me. That's why in verse 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. And then he defines contentment. If we have food and we have covering, we should be content. Now, has Paul learned contentment over the years? 
And that's kind of a key word there, isn't it? He has learned to be content. He told the Philippians, I can, I can get along with much, I can get along with nothing. Because God has taken care of me and he's providing for those things that I have need of. We've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. There's the basis for Shakespeare's play, right? Yeah, can't take it with you. So again, being content. Verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin. There's a progression here. You have those who turn away from sound doctrine. And we've seen that many times here in 1 Timothy of these who are turning away. They are turning aside. There's a progression here in the, the second two parts here in verse 9. Those who, so you have those who turn aside and then you have those who fall into temptation and then it accelerates. They plunge into ruin. That is a slippery, slippery slope. And why? Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's the greatest problem with money. You think it's the thing that is actually giving you great protection? Your, your wounds become self-inflicted. When you put your trust in that, it is all the damage that you're bringing, you're bringing it on yourself. In, in Isaiah, when it talks about our righteousness is as filthy rags, the very thing, when I think that somehow I can earn God's favor, the very thing that I think is going to bring me into God's favor is the very thing that casts me from his presence. It makes me unclean. It makes it to where I can't approach him. And the same thing happens here with money. So, Timothy, here's how you deal with this. Don't get sucked into the idea of accumulating the worldly goods and worldly treasures. You flee. You run away from that. It's not just that you don't actively pursue it. You run away from that. And instead, you pursue. And this word pursue is also translated in other places, persecute. Paul was a persecutor of Christians before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, right? He chased them down. If they went to another town, he went after them so that he could bring them back to bring them to justice with the air quotes. That's the idea here. You run away from the desire to have riches here and instead you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You pursue those things that are actually precious in God's sight. Those things that are going to make you more like Him. God's not going to care. And nor is it going to matter when we get to heaven as to how much is in our 401k. Yeah, isn't that right? Somebody's up here going, that's a good thing. And so again, the idea here is give up these things here. If, if your desire is to be accumulating things here, what did Jesus say about where your treasure is there, your heart will be also? So if my heart is all tied up with things that I can look out over, The guy who says, I've got to tear down my barns and build bigger barns. i got so much stuff, I, don't have, I haven't got a place to put it. So I need to tear down and then say to my soul, soul, you have everything you need. And God comes to him and says what? You fool. This very night, 
your soul will be required of you and, and what's going to matter with all that other stuff. And so again, now, in getting ready for 2 Timothy, last night I went through and I looked at something that frankly I hadn't caught in this book, in 1 Timothy. The first imperative in 1 Timothy, the first command, Timothy, do this, is in chapter 4, verse 7. That's where the first imperative is. Paul talks for three whole chapters, and it's largely descriptive. Here's how to do this. Here's how to do this. Here's, here's these different things here. Now, the last part of 1 Timothy, chapter 5 and chapter 6, oh, now he starts picking them up, and here he's going to start zinging them. Okay, Timothy, boom, boom, boom. Timothy, flee from money, these money issues, you man of God. We could, we could trace that through, that, that phrase there, man of God. You pursue righteousness and godliness and all of these things. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. These, so here again, Timothy, do this, do this, do this. Run away from this, pursue this. You fight, you take hold. That word take hold, there's a beautiful picture of this word. In, uh, in Hebrews, it talks about how Abra uh, God does not help. He does not give aid to angels, but he gives help to the son of Abraham, right? That same word is the word that's used in, um, oh, fui, it's in the notes here. Uh, da -da 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 Matthew 14, 31. Okay, they're, on the, uh, they're out on the lake, and there's a storm, and Jesus is walking on the water. And Peter, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you, all right? Come on. And Peter gets out, and he's walking on the water, and all of a sudden he looks around, and he goes, ah, this ain't supposed to work, right? And immediately he starts, he goes under, Lord, help me. And Jesus took hold of Peter. That's our word here. He reaches in and he grabs Peter and he's got him and he brings him up. Back up where he's walking on water, by the way. You take hold in the same manner. You take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And so these are things that Timothy is to do. Run away from these temptations. Instead, you chase after those things that are really life indeed. Fight. You know, Christianity, the Christian life is not passive. It is not passive. And frankly, we, we err badly when we said, you know, Lord, please take away this desire from me. What am I supposed to do with the desires that I have that are not godly? Yeah, it's on me to kill them, mortify the flesh, to actively fight, to actively resist. That's on me. I can't lay that one off on God. That's mine. And I am to persevere in that. I'm to, get my I'm to get my shoulder under that load, and I carry it. I put one foot in front of the other. Those are on me. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, Boy, he's worked up about something here, right? Timothy, you'd better pay attention. This one's important. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what he's got in mind here is probably the wide view. This is the wide view. You hold on to truth. 
at the end of this chapter, he's going to talk, Timothy, guard that which has been entrusted to you. In 2 Timothy, we're going to find, guard the treasure. You keep the truth. You live the truth. You teach the truth. And when you get those, through those things, you do them all over again. Those are just constant and consistent. And you do it until you're relieved. That's perpetual duty. In Timothy, you'll be relieved by one of two things. You'll be relieved by death or you'll be relieved by the coming of Christ. That's your only ways out. And he will bring that about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so, Timothy, you stay on it. He's, already, he's encouraged him. You've been equipped. You've been given what you need both in truth and in power. Timothy, hands were laid on you, gifts were given to you by God. So as you would find in Colossians, at the end of Colossians, when it talks about Archippus, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, you stay on point. And then, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all good things to enjoy. So again, here's people, they aren't longing to get rich. They aren't, you know, setting themselves up for, for trouble. They've already, you know, I would like to be able to accumulate these things. These are people, they've already got it. So... How do I deal with that if I've already got it? Control how you think. Because how you think is going to dictate how you act, right? So, don't be conceited. Don't look down on other people because you have something that they don't. Instead, rather than, than lord that over them, use it to accomplish the work of the kingdom. Don't, and again, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. What was one of the uh, things that happened early on in 1929, on Black Friday in October of 1929, when you had the great stock market crash? What was happening in New York on Wall Street? Oh, do it, say it out loud, Richard. Yeah, guys are jumping out windows. Why? Because they built hopes on a house of cards. Jesus said, you know, he who hears my words and does them, does it, well, he'll be like the wise man. Builds his house, it's on a rock. Here comes the storm, nothing happens to it because his house is built on the rock. These guys who had their hope built on money, on paper wealth, all of a sudden when it went away, here comes the storm. And they get washed away. And they get taken out. Why? Because their hope is on something that is not rock. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. You trust God. Rich people have to trust God just as much as those of us who aren't rich. And by the way, I think most of you know this, if you've traveled anywhere else in the world, the poorest person in here is rich on a global scale. 
Why can we trust God? Because He gives us the things that we need to enjoy? There's a word in here that is an appropriate word, isn't it? God just doesn't give us needing, He doesn't meet out. Tell me who in this room can look at God and say, you know what, you've given me just what I need to survive. He richly supplies us. Richly. See, when we look at that and we, and we realize just how good God is to us, what should that be fostering inside of our hearts? Say, gratitude, exactly. And so again, the idea here, when you trust money, you are trusting in us, ultimately, you're trusting on yourself, ultimately. That elevates you. That's again, that's why he's telling him, look, don't get conceited. That's the tendency. That is our tendency. When we realize that what we have is what God has given us and God is, he lavishes on us. When we understand that, frankly, that helps us to be humble. We can depend on him. Realize that we need to depend on him. And so again, it brings us low. It's it's the antidote to being conceited. And so again, here are these things that God is giving to us that frankly, oftentimes, we aren't even stopping to consider how it is that God is actually helping us by not putting us in certain positions. Was it Fiddler on the Roof? It was Tevye, right? You know, uh, the curse of being rich. Well, may I be so cursed and may I never recover, right? God richly supplies us with all good things, all things to enjoy. So again, How do you help them? You instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Now, which future is he talking about there? That is a trick question, by the way. Okay. And that is, so eternity, yes. And that is absolutely true. But can I tell you, it has every bit as much to do with tomorrow. Listen, when we live in such a way where we are generous, which we are commanded to be hospitable, right? When we are generous, we're ready to help those who have need. Can I tell you something? That's storing up a good foundation for tomorrow morning. Because it's fostering the attitude that I'm not dependent on what I have. I'm dependent on the God who gave me what I have. And therefore, what I have, ah, that's his. And so I can use it in such a way that it brings glory to him. And frankly, it brings joy to the giver too, doesn't it? I know I can ask that because I can look around in this room and know people and see, you know, you've done these things and so you know these things to be true. And again, You're storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. What's real life? O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Timothy, don't get sucked away. Don't get turned aside. Stay on point. Questions for 1 Timothy. Okay, turn the page. First Timothy, Paul 
is free. He is, uh, he's, he's on the southwest mantra. He's free to roam about the country. He's not in prison. He is con- he's carrying on ministry. He's got Titus over on Crete. He's got Timothy uh, over here in Ephesus. And he's got other guys who are doing work on his behalf in different places. And, and, and things are good. Things are just peachy. Second Timothy, we're going to find that there is a shift in Paul's circumstances. And Paul is, is rapidly coming into a different phase of life. He's coming into the terminal phase of his life. So let's read the book. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment, as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres follow, folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecution, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry.
for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erasmus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now the tone of 2 Timothy is a lot different than 1 Timothy, isn't it? When Paul appealed to Caesar, he was being accused by the Jews. And for whatever reason, that went nowhere once he got to Rome. And again, Titus is the best evidence for Paul being freed uh, because, again, you see places in, in Titus where Paul is saying, look, uh, I've left you at Crete. I'm heading up to Nicopolis. I want you to meet me up there because I'm going to spend the winter there. And there's no evidence, there's no record of that in the book of Acts. And so the, the best explanation is that that's happening because he's been released and he's on a fourth missionary journey. The next time Paul's taken into custody is probably by Rome. And so now he's not up against the Jews and he's dealing with the empire. And when he writes this letter, he's already been spared from execution once. He doesn't expect to be spared twice. And so death looms in this book. So the theme of the book is passing the baton. Paul is heading to his reward. Timothy is going to be one of those remaining behind. Considering that Acts was written by Luke, who was Paul's companion, remember when we, when we studied Titus? Titus isn't mentioned in the book of Acts anywhere, which is actually kind of interesting, considering the, you know, the number of missions that he went on for the Apostle Paul. Luke concentrates on Timothy. And I think there, it probably is legitimate to look at Timothy was, had a very special relationship with Paul. And so now Paul is, is giving his, these, these last words, right? It's not long before his execution. You see words in 2 Timothy that you didn't see in 1 Timothy. Suffering. Word doesn't show up in 1 Timothy. Hardship. That word's not there either. The idea of being ashamed or not being ashamed. That's not in 1 Timothy either. 
And so he's, Timothy, these are things you're going to have to endure too. Here's how you can do that. You would think that with death being so near to Paul, that you could see him becoming withdrawn. And you could see him becoming quiet. And yet, how does Paul bookend? He brackets this letter. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. And at the end of the book, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. How did Jesus refer to the crown at the end in Revelation when he said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Can you hear in Paul's tone the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. The fact of the matter is, there is a day coming, and it was coming soon, when Paul was going to be martyred for Christ. How did Paul view his martyrdom? He was going to, go ahead. You know, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Do you know what was unique about the drink offering? Any of the other offerings, the wave offering, the grain offering, a portion of it was sacrificed. The priest got the rest. Many of the meat offerings, a portion of it was offered but a portion of it was retained either for the worshiper or for the priest. The drink offering was the only offering that was always poured out in full. Nothing was kept. Nothing was held back. That's pretty cool to be able to stand at the end of your life And to say, I've, I've given it all. I haven't held anything back. Paul was going to be safely delivered. Paul was safely taken to his heavenly home. When you die in Christ, you're delivered. fully. Isn't it interesting that when we pray for somebody who is sick, we may ask for their healing, but what are we really asking for? Something that's temporary. When God takes us to glory, we are fully, permanently And so this is not, I mean, it's a book. The idea of, as Paul is writing these things, Timothy, you need to hear what I'm saying because I'm not going to have another chance to tell you. So you need to catch it. And you need to catch it on this one. But don't think for two seconds that Paul's going out with a whimper. Lots of imperatives 
in 2 Timothy. When you're dying, people tend to take what you have to say with maybe a little more gravity than at other times. So Timothy would do well, and frankly, we will do well to heed what he has to say. Let's pray. Father, you know the beginning from the end. And I think of uh, our own body here, how persecution sure seems to be a lot more likely now than in years past. And how timely it is to be looking at a book like this, written by a man who knew from experience what it was to suffer in every way for your cause. And Father, I pray that you would embolden us that we would pick up the gauntlet ourselves, that we would be about the business of advancing your kingdom, that we would know the truth, that we would do the truth, and that we would teach it and that we would preach it in every way conceivable by how we act and by our words and how we think. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you how you guide us into all truth. Lord, how we need that in our day. Thank you for this morning and the chance to gather together that we may worship you as one. May we do that with our whole hearts this morning. You deserve nothing less. In Christ's name, amen.